Well, welcome back for the last of three in the series on homardiology, the doctrine of sin. After this week, we'll have finished up a pretty good survey of the, of the field of study. Of course, there's so much here, and um, it is truly, it's actually a very enriching study to really look at what the Scripture says about who we are uh, in our native depravity. Uh, this study uh, several years ago is very awakening for me. Uh, it, it engendered in my heart a brand new uh, appreciation for the grace that we have been given in Christ Jesus. I mean, we are just, we stand as amazing beneficiaries of God's undeserved favor and kindness to us. And um, so it, it kind of rebirthed a, a new love for the gospel. And the more you study this, the more convinced you become that apart from God's grace, none of us would have any hope of even realizing the danger that we are in, in as lost and depraved sinners. And so being able to have God's word and revelation to us about this is a tremendous gift and privilege. I know it's, um, it seems like at every turn we're being pummeled into the dust here, um, reminded of our who we are, what, of, of the uh, mortality of our condition, the, the sinfulness of our hearts. And every turn we look, we just see more and more um, evidence mounting up in that regard, but uh, we are made hungry for Christ and made anticipating for the for the glorious uh, news of the gospel here. So we do spend time here. Just I think this will um, cultivate an appetite for the things that we'll be studying in a little while. Next week we'll be in the doctrine of angels, and uh, I think either Pastor Farrell or Tim will be here for that one. I'm not clear on exactly who's handling that doctrine of angels, but you're going to get that all in one week. And then Mike Duncan, I thought I saw him, He's, he'll be up here for the next six for, um, is it six or five that you'll be doing in Christology? Six, okay, that'll be exciting. So hope you'll hang in there with us and uh, get yourself ready for some wonderful things coming ahead. All right, what we're going to do tonight with our time together, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Romans. I know we've been in Romans several times uh, recently, especially in Romans 5, but we're going to go back there again. Because I want to try to take a few moments and synthesize some, some important, pertinent texts related to the doctrine of original sin. So, um, in the last couple weeks, we have started uh, right here. Let me go ahead and back to this. Last few weeks, we started with the nature of sin. We spent a good while on that. Last week, in the time we had together, I only made it through the origin of sin, or the fall of man, we call it. And uh, so we've set ourselves up nicely here for this doctrine of original sin. All right, so that's our plan. But tonight we'll go through the doctrine of original sin. We'll look at the extent of that sin in a sub, like a subgroup or a subheading underneath total depravity. Under, uh, uh, under original sin is total depravity. And uh, it was my hope to get into the, the subject of the believer in sin. And... Um, We'll see if we'll have time allow, allowing for that. If not, we may punt that one to the uh, study of sanctification or the doctrine of salvation at some point, and we'll talk more about that at that point. I'll put that burden on the next guy who's going to teach. So, All right, well, we'll we're here together. Hopefully you have a uh, handout. You'll be able to track with me pretty well on that handout, I think, as we get dive right in here. And so we'll look, first of all, at the doctrine of original sin. We need to first off begin by defining what we mean by original sin, because this term is very ambiguous, and it can be used in a lot of different senses, depending on who's writing, 
what perspective they're writing from or what perspective they're teaching from, what church tradition they come from. Um, this term gets used in uh, Catholic writing. It gets used in Protestants, Mormons, others who, uh, who write on original sin will use this term without defining it. So it, it behooves us to give some clarity to that. So we have basically three par- parts to this definition. And uh, the first one is Adam's original act of sin. When we talk about original sin, sometimes people think only in terms of what we studied last week in Genesis 3 as Adam's original sin in the Garden of Eden. Um, And so that's the term that we often associate with original sin, the original act that Adam um, transgressed in the Garden, uh, broke God's command, and took of the fruit. And although that is sometimes what is meant by original sin, that's not really all that we entail, entail by that term. In fact, that use of the term is not controversial at all. It's... uh, Everyone will admit that that's the first sin. That's the original one, if you will. Um, But that's not what we intend to mean when we say original sin. Uh, What we do mean is this another layer here. The second portion of this definition is that we are presenting here an inherited sinful condition, a sinful state. Um, And that's what we mean by the total or what we mean by original sin. It means that we uh, have been communicated to us by our birth as human beings a pollution of our nature, a corruption that is universally part of our fallen humanity, that every human being who's ever been born inherits this corruption from Adam from the fall. And um, that is that he inevitably will commit his own sinful acts because his nature has been polluted and corrupted. But the extent to which this sin determines um, how much he tends to sin tends to be um, discussed among different traditions. So what we're going to try to say is push even a little further. That we're not just saying that man was born with a tendency to sin. We're going to go so far to say that man now bears the guilt of the original sin of Adam. We're going to go so far to say that not only is he has a tendency to sin, but he is guilty of the sin of, his, uh, of Adam himself. And we'll see that in Romans chapter 5. So this idea of original sin gets misunderstood. As I was saying, uh, Catholics will go so far to say that we all have a tendency to sin. But they don't believe that our original guilt remains. Remember, if you know Catholic uh, tradition, maybe you grew up in this, in this world. Uh, as a baby, you'll be brought in for baptism. And in the baptism rite, you have water sprinkled on your forehead, which is said to wash away your original guilt. And uh, they'll say that that's simply washing away original sin, that that removes the initial guilt that you carry forward as, um, as someone who descends from Adam. Of course, this is, has no basis in the scriptures. And they defied this idea of um, original guilt from um, a condition. So that's, that's simply not scriptural. We'll, we'll look more in depth at that just a little bit. Another example, original sin in, in Mormonism is the tendency to sin is innate to all human beings. It's held to be inherited from Adam in consequence of the fall, but they do not hold that this doctrine, the doctrine of what's called imputed sin, which teaches that the guilt of Adam's sin is credited not just to Adam himself, that that sin was not just Adam's sin. They, they don't believe, rather, they believe that it was just Adam's sin. They don't believe that we had any partaking in that, that every man stands in his own account that uh, they reject this teaching of original guilt, and they say, um, 
we sin like Adam did, so we inherit the same kind of punishment that Adam does. And so we basically see there's two facets of this inherited sinful condition we want to look at. There's this innate natural corruption that we all have. We all have born with a tendency to sin. But scripture goes on to say there's a second aspect to that, that we have imputed guilt. We have been accounted the guilt of Adam for the sin in the garden as well. And that's important as well to understand. So we have an innate natural condition of corruption, and we have a liability for the guilt of the sin of Adam, whereby we're culpable for the sin of Adam and justly in sentence of its punishment. So both of these aspects are part of the whole package of original sin. And that's why I want to spend, thirdly, we're going to go further with our definition of not just saying it's Adam's original act, yes, but it also transmits to us a sin nature. It goes beyond that and say that we are guilty by that fact that Adam, who was our representative, sinned, and by his sin, he incurred a punishment that we today, we today still have to pay in penalty of, and that is death. Death continues to this day, doesn't it? Uh, death was, uh, reigns among us, reigns among men, because of Adam's sin. So we have an original guilt in Adam. And this is like uh, the most controversial part of the biblical doctrine of original sin because it's called, uh, because um, we actually call this imputed sin or inherited sin. I might use those two definitions, those two words, but I really mean the guilt of Adam being transmitted to us. Um, So there's more to our problem than just a tendency to sin. Every individual actually bears the guilt of Adam's sin, as we'll see in Romans chapter 5. Pastor's been working us through that very well and pointing this 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 very important point out to us. Um, we have uh, this really helpful fra- uh, framing up of the idea of guilt being transmitted to us. John Frame says this. He says it teaches that we are, that is the scripture, a doctrine of original sin, teaches us that we are guilty of Adam's sin. It isn't just that we are punished for it, for without guilt, punishment would be unjust, but that we are actually guilty of it. It is hard for modern people to accept that a person can be guilty of someone else's sin, even the sin of an ancestor. But first, we must be clear that the scripture teaches this doctrine. Okay, so they set up pretty much the crisis or the the question for us pretty well there. Uh, How is it that I can be held accountable for Adam's sin? I was not there in the garden. I was not consciously involved, perhaps, but yet I'm somehow recipient of his punishment. How is that just? And so we're going to look at Romans chapter 5 and look at that question a little bit more closely. All right, so if you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 12 through 19 and just kind of step through a a brief exposition of this together. As you recall, verse 12, we begin with this, uh, a comparison is being made between two men, two acts, creating two different results. Pastor Farrell has repeated that phrase several times to us as we've gone through Romans chapter 5. But uh, nonetheless, that helps is a helpful framework for us to see what's happening. There's a contrast and a comparison being done here. Verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. 
But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, picking up the thought left off in the end of verse 12, so then, as through one transgression... There resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And so we'll conclude right there for a moment. So we see a couple, a couple of important structures here in the text. The whole text is dealing with the transmission of sin, how sin is transmitted to us as human beings in comparison to how righteousness is then therefore transmitted to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we're shown two figures in the text to kind of show how God is dealing with all of humanity in terms of representational uh, figures. Adam for lost humanity and Christ, all those who are in Christ, recipients of his gift of grace, they are treated as, as, Christ is, as Christ is dealt with here in this, in this passage. So we see, first of all, sin transmitted to all by one man. Unnamed here in this passage, but we know who is the one man referred to here. And that sin enters through the act of Adam's sin. We looked at that last week, Genesis chapter 3. Clearly, sin makes its way. Adam's sin wasn't the first. Uh, we, we, we understand scripture to teach that Satan and the angels perhaps fell before that, and so sin had already entered into the cosmos in one way, one way of thinking of that, but it entered into humanity through Adam's sin. I'm sorry, I was trying to figure out who's, that's me. (laughs) Okay, all right, I'll answer that later, I don't know who that was. All right, so sin entered through Adam's act of sin. Then death results from Adam's act of sin. So you know that that's the consequence. One of the things that we read in Genesis chapter 3, that uh, one of the consequences of Adam's sin was the curse upon him that he would return to the dust from which he was created. That's the promise of of death. Uh, He was told that in the day he would eat of it, he would die. And die, he he did. Uh, Spiritually, he uh, he, uh, was separated from God in a spiritual sort of death. Okay, so death did result, and that this death spread to all. And this curious phrase pops up here at the end of verse twelve. The last portion of verse twelve is the most controversial one, the most argued about, um, and it's that one that says, uh, "For and death spread to all men." And then it says this: "Because all sinned, because all sinned." Now, this idea, this. The fact that death spread to all men because all sinned is the question that we need to answer. And Paul has not elaborated on this. He's not explained to us the relationship that we have with Adam as of yet. But the language here sort of shows us a particular direction he's heading, and he'll elaborate on it further in 
specifically verses 15 and 17. But Augustine understood this phrase as it was translated to him in the Latin Vulgate, this phrase, because he uh, actually understood that as the words in whom. Uh, It was a mistranslation in the Latin Vulgate, but that was what he was using. And that would lead him to conclude that the entire human race was actually in Adam, in his loins, in his person. That germinally he was in the loins of Adam at the time of his transgression, thereby indicting all of humanity because we were all present with him in the garden in seminal form. And so this was his view. He called the real connection and presence of, of humanity in Adam. And that's how we inherit the guilt. We inherit it biologically from the descendancy of Adam. Uh, so this is, in his view, this was similar to how Levi could be said to have received tithes from Melchizedek, like in Hebrews chapter 7, where it was told that um, Abraham uh, gave tithes to Melchizedek and uh, while Levi was in his Levi was in his loins, and thereby Melchizedek being a higher order of priest. Uh, So it's that sort of uh, understanding that there's a way that we participate in this transmission of sin because we were, although not born, we still had some presence there, a real connection to Adam in that sense. But and it makes an interesting argument in favor of a seminal view of representation in Adam, but but it's not probably what Paul has in mind in this passage, and we'll look I'll show you that in just a minute. No one disputes the fact that we were all uh, in, in Adam in that sense, in that way, back in the garden, um, that we were physically present with Adam in that way, but it doesn't appear that that's what Paul has in mind when he's penning this passage because um, of a few things. Number one, August, Augustine was wrong when he said that this word means in whom. It, it actually is a causative conjunction, which actually means because. It's something... It's the grounds and the reason for which, why death spreads to all men is because, or the, the reason why was because all sinned. So if we inherit, the other problem is that it raises a lot of questions. If we are all recipients of Adam's sin because we we're in his loins, then what about every other subsequent generation of humanity after that? Do we inherit their sin as well? Does every individual stand to inherit the collective guilt of all your ancestors throughout history down to your present day. And uh, that seems to add some questions to this idea. And I don't think it's the best explanation of the text. So we have basically, we're going to set that to a side for a minute and see if there's a better understanding. And I think there there will be as as you look at this in a natural way. All right, he also says, because all sinned. And this word all sinned is fascinating because in this idea of um, the the homardion right here, um, sorry, I'm going to put back up. This one verb is fascinating because it's not written in a tense that in, indicates an ongoing or continual process over time. He's not saying that we were somehow involved in Adam's transgression by everyone subsequent to him sinned in the same way Adam did, thereby we incurred the same judgment that Adam got because we did the same thing Adam did in a continual, ongoing way. It's a aorist verb, which kind of suggests that this happened at one single point of time, that at one instance, um, at one point in time, we were in solidarity with Adam and that we uh, all collectively sinned. It's an interesting idea. So this point, this asks us, this questions us to raise the, the issue is at what point did we all collectively sin? We were not all 
obviously in the same generation as Adam. So when did this happen? Well, the, the answer is clearly that in Adam, in the garden, Adam was clearly there as a representative of all humanity. He, he, ser- he was served as a legal representative for the human race. He was God's appointed representative, and he was acting out, acting on our behalf of every human being. And so we call this view the federal, or sometimes we just call it the representational view of headship of Adam. Adam's functioning in a special and unique capacity as the head of a human race. Um, as our representative, his actions are conducted on our behalf, and we're equally responsible for them as if they were our own, because he's our legal representative. Just like we have legal representatives for us to uh, represent us in matters of legal importance, we might secure counsel, and they, they go and they present our case before the judge, and they are treated on our behalf, and what is done by them is seen to be done by us. Um, so, it is nonetheless difficult for people to understand that, but that's how God has chosen to deal with the problem of sinfulness in man. He saw fit to deal with them through the, through the standpoint of a representative, and that is Adam, at all, Adam or Christ. And so that's, what the, that's, how we're gonna understand, that's how we understand this chapter. In verse 12, Adam becomes the legal representative for all men, and all men subsequently receive and incur the punishment that was his. Right? So sin was in the world. Even, um, look here in verse 13, it says, Sin was in the world, for unto the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. This is simply saying that the law, the time period of the law, which was to come under Moses, had not yet come into play between Adam and Moses. The experience of death was still being experienced by all to show that sin, uh, the, the sin was still in force and that the punishment for that sin was still in force for everyone, Jew or Gentile or people outside of the law, were also experiencing death. So their punishment is proof that they were guilty, even without the law. Death was still reigning from Adam to Moses, even over those who didn't sin like Adam did. And that's Paul's very important point he makes here in verse, uh, I think it's in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So Paul wants to make sure that we understand that even though we did not sin in the same way that Adam did, we still inherited his punishment. We still continued to die. Death still reigned over us and over those outside of the covenant, outside of, outside of the law, perhaps, I should say. So... Um, According to Romans 1, 18 through 29, and Romans 2, 15, the law of God was revealed both in conscience and creation, and it was operating outside the law of Moses. So even without the law of Moses, people sinned and died, even though their sin was not like Adam's transgression. If men were receiving the punishment of Adam's sin, then that demonstrates that they were also guilty of Adam's sin. They did not exclusively die for their own sins, but because they had inherited the sin guilt of Adam, their father. Which takes us to... Uh, letter E. So, moving right along here. Sorry, this is a little protracted and a little bit more, uh, probably a little bit more cumbersome than it would be would seem. It's kind of a simple argument, really, we're making. That if you're dying, that's because Adam communicated to you a punishment. That is was not. It's not. You're not dying for your sin. You're dying because of Adam's guilt 
And I'll show you that. That's what precisely what Paul's going to say in the next verse. Next uh, verse 15b. He says, uh, well, let's start in verse 15 right at the top. But the free gift is not like the transgression. And he's going to start comparing a free gift with guilt. Okay? He's going to say, the free gift that you got in Christ, the righteousness which comes to us by faith in grace by God, to God from us, is not like the guilt, and it's not like it in this sense. Verse 15, he says, it's not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, the many died, that is to say, death and the subsequent death throughout the generations of man is a result of that, much more did the grace of God and the gift, of, by, the gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So there's a contrast here and a comparison made that although we receive the punishment of death by means of Adam, um, we also will receive a free gift by Christ. But notice he says this phrase twice. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, he says in verse 15b, and then he says it again, verse 17a. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, he's showing how the immediate connection between our death is, and how death is running, ruling over the human race is a subsequent result from Adam's transgression. Yeah, there can be no, no question there. So if the punishment's coming from Adam, it shows that we also inherit that, that guilt. And that's my letter E here. Condemnation is then imputed to all resulting through Adam. And this is important. He keeps laying the case down because it's going to show you how, how, it is that trans, we, how it is that righteousness can then be transmitted to us legally through Christ. I can, I can sense that there's already questions like, man, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem just. But you're going you're to see in just a minute that this is beautiful the way this works out. Letter E, condemnation is imputed to all, resulting through Adam. And that is to say, by Adam, by Adam's transgression, many died. By Adam's transgression, many were condemned, verses 15a and verses 18a. you see this in verse 18. He says this, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. And so, um, specifically, we're seeing that we've, we've inherited sin. If I was just to show you this here on the, up here. So, we've, this is what we get from Adam. We got sin entering into the, into the world, operating and um, ruling, enslaving all of humanity. Death is the consequence and result and actually a punishment from that sin, from Adam's act of sin. That death, specifically related to Adam's sin, is now spread to all. And then the explanation of the grounds for which that is done, it says, because all sinned. And that is, this again refers to the fact that we all sinned at one time in Adam. And not because we were in his loins, but because he was our representative in the garden. Okay? Our federal representative, you might say. And that punishment now is experienced by all without exception. Well, there is one exception. Of course, Jesus died, but he resurrected. He, he obviously defeated death. He is the exception to that. And we too will be that someday. And then condemnation would, was imputed to all and as a result through Adam. So that's how sin and death work in this world. 
that we have, inhabit, we have inherited here. Then we go on to say righteousness then is then transmitted to many by the one man. And, and that's how it's the same method by which we receive righteousness by imputation, by accounting. We're accounted righteous, just like we were accounted guilty in sin. And Paul's making that case several times here in 15b is one particular case. He says this, For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So righteousness comes by God's grace through one man, Jesus Christ, and it abounds, it overwhelms. It's uh, super abundant here. And uh, this, is, this is great news. God can legally communicate righteousness to us on the basis of our representative head, Jesus Christ. Jesus then becomes the head of a new kind of humanity, a new kind of race uh, in righteousness, by which he grants by a gift of grace his righteousness. And that life spreads to those, instead of death spreading like it did under Adam, life is what spreads to those who are graced in Christ made righteousness made righteous through him and we see that in verse 17 verse 17 it says for if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one Jesus Christ so we see the life is reigning through him and that let her see here grace grace entered through Christ's act of righteousness this is, a, this is the basis for which God extends grace. God's not gracious just because that's who he is. And in fact, he is gracious, but he does so on the basis of something. He can do this legally and justly because of Christ's finished work, Christ's completed work there. So grace can now enter through Christ's act of obedience, his righteousness. Um, so this is, what, this is what makes the whole thing work. Christ's Righteousness communicates grace. And then letter D, righteousness then is passed to men by obedience. His works, his finished work, his perfect life, his obedience to the, Christ, uh, to the, to, to, to the um, atonement work on the cross. That's what communicates righteousness. So we might say, well, that, that's interesting how God has set that up. I don't, you still might have some questions about how is this, how is this fair? <laughs> There's always a question about fairness. Um, once again, we just quickly look. Imputed guilt. We were imputed guilt brought on by universal condemnation through Adam. Okay, That's clearly said in verse 18. We are also, our condition, I, I brought these up by two here. Guilt and condition. Those are the two pieces of that I told you in the beginning were part of the package of original sin. Both of them are addressed in this text. Okay. Our guilt is brought on to us by Adam. Through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. And then the condition, our sinful tendency, our sinful nature. It says here, Adam's disobedience made many sinners. Made many sinners. Okay. As I say, we continue to sin. Why is it that we all sin without having been taught to, without having to go to... To be trained in it, without having to have it, had a lot of experience in it, we sim- it simply comes native to us, natural to us. It's because we inherited a sinful condition, a sin nature, as it were. For as though the, the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. See, we were made sinners by the one man's disobedience. 
so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So we have an imputed guilt, but that also means we have an imputed righteousness. That this righteousness comes to us by an accounted act, a, a, an act of um, a legal reckoning. Okay, Christ's righteousness brought universal justification, a removal of the guilt. So that as through one transgression there resulted the condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness. See that right there? Okay, there resulted justification, not condemnation any longer, but justification of life to all men. Christ's obedience made many righteous. This fixed our condition. Because the previous one fixed our guilt. This one fixes our condition. Because now we're no longer made sinners through the act of disobedience. But through Christ's obedience, we are made righteous. So there's a transformation here of our standing. A legal judgment is made by accounting Christ as the representative head over redeemed humanity. We are now accounted righteous by the act, righteous act of one, Jesus. And so this is, this is the best way in which God organized himself, arranged himself to be able to make to impute humanity righteousness. You say, this is, how does this fare? This is often these questions keep coming up. How is this fair? How is it that God has set this up that I no longer am accountable for? I'm not accountable for, that is to say, I'm, I am accountable for Adam and his fail. How can I be held responsible for that? Well, if you're going to feel that that's unjust, you're going to have to continue to be consistent and say, how is it fair then that you are accounted righteous by the act of Jesus, because you also did not participate in that either. You inherit that entirely by an, un, by an act of Christ's grace. And so God has determined that he's going to deal with man's ruin and fall by legal representation. These two men, these two acts, these two results, and yet God deals with them on the basis of Jesus and Adam. Um, another thing we should remember is that we don't get to judge God. I put that right there for you. I think we need to understand this. It's sort of ridiculous for us to think that in our twisted understanding of justice that we have the right to rule on God's righteous judgment, that somehow we, account, we find fault with God. That's what Adam and Eve did, and we are behaving similarly when we say the judge of the earth hasn't done what is right. We don't get to hold him to our standard. Honestly, the scales of our justice are imbalanced, and his isn't. So, we understand what he's done here is right and good. And you say, well, I didn't get to choose my representative. That should have been my right to do that. I would ask, who would you have chosen for your representative? Perhaps you say, oh, I would like to stand on my own two feet. I'd like to have been my own representative in that case. Well, would you have done a better job than Adam? I mean, Adam had, he had a way better situation than you have. I mean, he had a perfect environment. He did not have, already have inborn sin conditions, a tendency to sin. You didn't have already a, a desire for that. Certainly you yourself would have probably done no better. And if you do that, then Jesus could not have been your representative. For Jesus is the, um, f- uh, the fulfillment. Uh, he's the antitype to, to Adam. So he was the one you want representing you, not you. So I say... I think this is a, a, a excellent understanding, an ex- excellent way that God has set this up to deal with mankind's sin problem on the basis of how we are seen by our headship of either in Adam or in Christ. 
Now, that's the point he's making. I'm, he said, I want to communicate righteousness to you. I'm going to do so through, a, uh, through a, the, a true Adam, someone who is what Adam should have been but wasn't. And so we receive righteousness, a remedy to our original sin through the imputed righteousness that's available and communicated to us through Christ. So, fascinating passage. It's not an easy one, obviously. There's a lot of, a lot of questions that result and spawn out of this. But um, nonetheless, I think this, this passage gives us sufficient detail to allow us to rest completely in God's measure of dealing with our, our original, original sin condition. So, hopefully that's helpful. Let's move quickly on to the next portion here where we're going to talk about total depravity, which is sort of, is very much related to the subject we just talked about. I'm glad we get to do these back-to-back. What is total depravity? Well, we want to begin also by defining and describing this as well because a lot of misunderstandings, this, this, this term gets bandied about, and sometimes it's not always clearly defined. People get a misconception about what total depravity means. It sounds like we're telling everybody, we're saying that everybody is just, uh, just a monster. It's like, it's like we're saying everybody is just an absolute, um, you know, horrible uh, person, hellion of a person. And that's not what we're saying. We're not saying someone's as depraved as a demon or as, as fixed in their state as a as Satan himself, we're not trying to say that it means absolute depravity. We're not saying it means utter depravity. We're using the term total very specifically to, to, to explain a particular category, a, a, a particular characterization of how our sin is described in Scripture. So I put here, total depravity is a shorthand description for the extent of the corruption and the pollution of the sin nature inherited from Adam. So it's a... How, how much, how far has sin corrupted us? How much sin do we, do we have? Uh, what has been impacted by our sin nature? And so we're looking at questions of extent primarily here. And we're asking the question about what has been polluted, what has been corrupted by the sin. And we've already discussed it's already been inherited from Adam. So uh, this other terms that might apply to this sometimes are called pervasive depravity. You might hear that term sometimes, or radical. That just means that, that just means um, from the Latin radix, which means to the root, the root of our being, the essence of who we are, the very core of our person um, has been corrupted. The very essence of who we are is what's depraved. Or sometimes you hear this word total inability. Which inability is definitely implied, and but that's I think just a part of what we mean by total depravity. So, important clarifications. What does it not mean? I've already said it does not mean that we're absolutely depraved. That is to say that we are depraved to the state of in a fixed condition, a confirmed condition of depravity, like Satan and, and his demons. Um, we're not saying that people have an acute depravity or severe depravity where they're just as bad as they possibly can be. And at every waking moment, they're just trying to be as malevolent and evil as they possibly can. That's not what's entailed by total depravity. We're not saying it's, um, that it means, I use the word apparent depravity here, just to mean that even lost people, even us in our lost state, had uh, the ability to do some kinds of relative good towards others. In Matthew chapter 7, even Jesus admits that if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more then does your Father in heaven give good gifts to his children? So Jesus even admits that even people who are evil still love their children, still have a filial love for their, their families, uh, they love their wives, do uh, noble and, and kind acts for others. And so that's not what's at, that's not what's at stake in this, this discussion of total depravity. Instead, what we're talking about is the Scripture describes our state as an essential corruption. That means to say every aspect of your humanity, your heart, your thoughts, your conscience, your motives, your everything about what makes you you, your, your inner man, inner and outer man, in fact, are all have been tainted and corrupted by sin in its effects in your life. Okay? So there's a, it goes right to the essence of who you are. It also describes what I call an exhausted capacity, and that just means... Sorry, I have turned on my... I've got to turn that off somehow. Technology, you got to love it. It agrees with me. All right. Exhausted capacity. That just means that um, you have a complete powerlessness. You don't have a moral power with which to do any good towards God um, in the sense that you cannot earn your salvation. You cannot make yourself more amenable to salvation. You cannot make yourself more uh, prepared to become saved in any way. You simply lack the capacity. You have no moral power to make yourself desirable to God or to be in any way presented to God for salvation. God does a fully a full work of grace from beginning to end. He, he loves you when you don't deserve it naturally. He, he extends himself in sacrificial ways towards you when you uninvited it. You did not invite it. You, in fact, resisted him that while we are yet sinning, we are still sinners, he still died for us. So uh, we do not have a capacity to please God in our natural state. And that's an extensive condition. And by that, I just simply mean, I, I like these, as I get probably caught up in these uh, uh, alliterations sometimes, but it just helps me keep my track. But I just mean that by universal, the universal condition of all mankind. All of us, every single one of us, without exception, is conceived in sin. Psalm 51, 4 says that in sin, my mother conceived me. So he, he's giving witness to the truth of the fact that we are all born as native sinners. So... Um, what is total depravity? It is these three things. It's an essential corruption, it's an exhausted capacity, and an extensive condition. And how is it denoted in Scripture? So, um, well, let's look at a couple passages. I, I might just kind of barrage you here with a number of texts. I just want to kind of wash you in these texts real quick. Not because I want to hurry past them, but because I want you to get a sense for just how often and how how poignant these texts are and how often they're just uh, meant to drive us back to our original state. And that's helpful to, for us to ponder because it'll help us recall just how greatly we stand in need of God's grace. So first of all, we see total depravity is an essential corruption. that we, It first of all features in a spiritual deadness in our, in our lives. Uh, we, we expect that because we saw it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 through 17, because God the Lord God had commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, so that is the, obviously, 
the, the result of spiritual death, okay? They did not die, they did not physically perish at that moment, but they did have a severing of their relationship with God. There was a, a separation in that sense that death did occur. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread unto all men, spiritual deadness as well as physical deadness, because all sinned. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is the state of your spiritual life. You were spiritually dead. You were deceased. You had no life spiritually in you whatsoever. Okay? So he said, goes on so far to say that um, you were children of wrath, which we'll revisit that in just a moment. But the spiritual deadness theme continues. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, And you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So until Christ made a significant transforming work in your heart and birthed you anew by the Spirit of God, you were not in a state of spiritual neutrality. You were not somehow spiritually comatose. You were dead uh, without, any, um, without any power. Okay? Spiritual deadness, we also see, number two, uh, characterized, the essential corruption is characterized by a darkened mind and heart. Furthermore, we'll see that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Early in the Genesis narrative, the Bible says, as the Lord saw the wickedness of man, Genesis 6, 5, he said the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent, every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. What a staggering statement. Um, of the condition of, of every man on this planet. Later on, after the flood, the Lord uh, continued to respond to this. In Genesis 8.21, it says, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma from Noah's sacrifice after the, they landed again. And it says this, For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, the Lord said. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Ecclesiastes 9.3, There is an evil that is... An, there is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Ecclesiastes 9 is a pretty encompassing statement of the true nature of our heart, isn't it? Insanity in our hearts. You know, sin is insanity. And you think about it's perpetrated against an all-knowing, omnipotent, um, God, and uh, we do it in such a high-minded way. It's insanity that we do that. And so we see this further on, Jeremiah seventeen nine. You know this passage well, don't you? The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Mark 7 says that out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, and adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So, depravity from within. Jeremiah, uh, sorry, John 3.19 says that this is the judgment, the light is coming to the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for, the deeds were e- for their deeds were evil. Even as I read these verses, I have to say, this accurately accurately assesses my condition before Christ, doesn't it? For you, when you look back and before you knew who, before you came to faith in Christ, this is exactly the portrait of who we were. Lovers of darkness and our hearts completely corrupt. 
going on further to say this, it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 7 and 8, says this, because the mind is set on the flesh, it's hostile toward God. So we're not indifferent, we're not aloof, we're not somehow neutral in terms of our relationship to God. We are in hostility towards him. That you may not have perceived that about yourself, but you were postured in a position of hostility against God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, so therefore we are rebels. And it is not even able to do so, it says in that passage. It even goes so far to say that not only we're unwilling to do this, we're unwilling to yield to the command and, and the rule of God in our lives, but we were unable to do so. The lack of power and ability there, even explicitly stated in that verse. It says, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans chapter 8, verse 8. Furthermore, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, for he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. So one of the characteristic traits of our depravity is that we have effects placed upon our mind where we are unable to appraise or unable to understand or unable to grasp what the spiritual state of things are. It's like we have no capacity to understand in that sense. We have darkened minds. This, this is again said in Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 19. It says that Paul was speaking to the Ephesians. He says that to the Christians there, he was telling them to not walk like they used to walk, just as Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, which because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their heart. So he says that that's the condition of us outside, uh, outside of Christ. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, like we used to be before we came to Christ, nothing is pure, for both their mind and their conscience are defiled. So if you uh, start to walk through the list, you have my little guy on the right-hand side there. Scripture is telling us that the mind itself is... Um, under the control of the God of this world. It is un- not able to understand. It has been impacted by a noetic effect. That is to say, the, the sin's noetic effect is that it has darkened and made, made their minds incapable of a, a, a seeing and a understanding spiritual realities. Um, the intellect has been, um, has been impacted. Now, there are a lot of smart people who are lost. <laughs> Very intelligent, very, um, have a lot of sophistication, as, as, as the world would say, but they lack the ability to, to understand spiritual things that is granted to them by spiritual life in the Holy Spirit. So um, when I say that their intellect is dark, and I'm not saying that they're dumb people, I'm saying their spiritual capacity to perceive truths from the Word of God is inhibited because they don't have the spiritual awakening of the Holy Spirit to, to illuminate these things to their minds. And it says here, the natural man does not receive the things of God for their foolishness unto them because they're spiritually appraised. They think the things of God are foolish. And so, and so did we, perhaps at one time before Christ. The conscience is defiled. We just read that. You can read it again in Hebrews chapter 9 for 14. We just read it in Titus 1, 15. The conscience is defiled. The heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. Romans chapter 3 will tell us the desires of our hearts are all for ourselves and evil, okay? The body is awaiting, awaiting, uh, sorry, awaiting the, uh, is groaning, awaiting the redemption that's to come. So the body has been impacted by sin. 
And even the will, our, our will that we carry, is not sufficiently capable on its own to reconcile or rectify our condition. It says in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, it says that we were not born of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. So our will is not capable. We can't will our way into heaven. We can't just make a decision to go to heaven on our own, and that just settles the matter. The will is not sufficiently capable. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 16, it says, Not of him who willeth, or of him who runneth, but of God. So God has to do a transforming work. He's got to re- He's got to not just do a renovation. He's not just got to warm over the old dead corpse of our lost state. He's got to remake, transform entirely a new creature altogether. So we're in need of this new birth. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 5 and 7 to Nicodemus, he says, Marvel not that I say unto you that you must be born again. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of spirit is spirit. So that's why you must be born again. So the spiritual birth, you're needing a whole new start. A brand new creation must be created, a new birth. Um, that was difficult for, uh, no, no less difficult for Nicodemus as it is for us. But difficult news for us to hear, in, in fact. But it's our only hope. The new birth is the only, only way we get to overcome this total depravity. It's also an exhausted capacity. As I say, there is an inability to change here. Job 14.4 tells us this. Who can make the clean out of, an un, out of the unclean? Who can make the clean out of the unclean? Job says, no one, of course. Jeremiah 13.23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So just like it's unchanged, you can't change your condition any more than a leopard can change his own spots. It's a pretty vivid uh, analogy there, isn't it? Matthew 7, 16, 18, and several places in Matthew 12, it tells us that bad trees cannot produce good fruit. They just cannot. It's not a matter of unwillingness. It's not a matter of that they're simply not inclined to do that. No, it's that they cannot. They have no power, no ability, no capacity. It's exhausted capacity here. John six forty four tells us that no man can come unto me, Jesus says, Unless the Father who sent him draws, sent me draws him. You can't come to him unless the Father draws him. That's again reiterated in verse 65 of the same chapter. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Hard statements to hear. Of course, these stirred up a great deal of um, controversy even in the day when Jesus said this. But he's making the point that capacity is limited. In fact, it's... It's very limited in this case. Um, not only that, I, there's several other verses here. You can go ahead and look at these. Some of them we already have looked at. But look at this one. Um, not only do we have an exhausted capacity in our ability to change, inability to change, we have a bondage that we live in as lost people. We are not free in any sense of the term, when you think about it, as lost people. We are, in fact, enslaved. We're in bondage to Satan himself under the dominion and power and rule of him. It says so in Scripture so many times, so often. In John eight forty four, Jesus says, You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of the lies. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 
tells us that we walked in our former days according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, who is that? It's none other than Satan himself, right? So we're walking in harmony and in union and in accordance with him, okay, as lost people. He says that spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2, verses two uh, verse 25 through 26, that we are called upon. Paul's prayer here is that we would work with gentleness among those who are in opposition to us because perhaps God may grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape what? The snare of the devil. They're not free. We weren't free. We were caught in the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him, to do his will. And so we were servants of Satan. First uh, John 3.10 says the same. talks about we were the children of the devil. First John 5.19 says the whole world lies in the power of the wicked one. And not only the Satan, but even, even greater still, even without Satan in the picture, even though he is there, uh, even without him, we still have the own, our own sin problem, which enslaves us. John 8.34, Jesus says... Truly, truly, I say unto you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. We were servants to our sin nature. Uh, first Romans 6.20, when you were the slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what he's saying there is your slavery to sin does not allow you to be free to do any kind of righteous act that's acceptable before God. So you were not genuinely free in that sense. Titus 3.3, 3, for once we were also foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. And so you'll see the bondage that we have indeed shows our capacity is, is completely limited and exhausted. And then lastly, an extensive condition. And all this, is, all this is meant to say is that everyone in this world, without exception, has the condition of sinfulness. Even from 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46, it says, There is no man who does not sin. I think of Ecclesiastes 7.20, There's not a just man on this earth who does good and sins not. Uh, Proverbs 29 says this, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from sin. For, uh, Isaiah 53, 4-6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Even Isaiah 64, verse 6, kind of knocks the wind out of you when you think, well, maybe I have some kind of righteous offering to give that might find some approval with God, when he says, even your righteousnesses are like filthy rags. This is not just your sins that are offensive to God. These are the righteous acts you, you endeavor to offer to him in hopes of pleasing him. Your righteousnesses aren't even acceptable. In fact, they're very offensive to him because they're done in, in the spirit of autonomy and, and belief that you are uh, good of your own accord. And so... There is an extensive condition here. So, I'm out of time, but I would have loved to have shared with you how this played out over history. But uh, in, the, in the understanding of what we just looked at biblically, man is indeed totally depraved and in, stands in, in need of grace from front to back, inside out. There is no way we would ever find our way to God. He came to us. He transformed our hearts. He called us to himself. And by his grace... Is that's the that's the only hope for humanity. So that's hopefully that sets you up to be longing for not just this next study on the doctrine of angels, but beyond that even when you start talking about Christ 
and the special provision of Christ in his, in his, in his work for our, our sakes and bringing us from sin, out of the slavery of sin, into um, a relationship, into a, a redemption, a state of redemption with him by his finished work. So hopefully that's helpful to us as we kind of said. A lot of this I know is stuff you have known well and have heard, but hopefully, again, nonetheless, good to have refreshed for us because you encounter this topic almost on every page of the, of, of the scriptures. So it's good to be mindful of it. Thank you, Father, for the time we've got to spend together in looking this over. And, Lord, the more we just stare at these passages, the more realization we, go, we come to is that how precious Christ was, is, and uh, how he continues, how, how, how without him there's absolutely no hope. Lord, we would just despair to think that uh, even while we were not even looking for you, even while we had no uh, cause to turn from our sin, no, no, as miserable as it makes us, we never made the first movement towards you, and yet you initiated towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, you died for us, and you brought the word of God to us, and the gospel was proclaimed among us, and we heard it, and you awakened us to it, and through your Holy Spirit, you called us to yourself, uh, Lord, we believed and we repented, and even that we look back on, realizing that that was a miraculous work of you as well. Yes, we were involved, and we, we did those things genuinely and responsibly, but nonetheless, you were even involved even in that level. You took this heart of stone, and you made it a heart of flesh, and you, you've begun this new, this new work in us. You created a new creature in us. You made us a, gave us a new birth with a new hope and a new destiny. And, uh, Lord, we're just so grateful for that. As we think about what you've done in overcoming and overpowering uh, sin and its effects, we also just want to thank you for how you continue to bear with us as, as now believers redeemed in Christ and yet continually learning to battle the remaining elements of sin that still are uh, showing signs of life in our, in, our, in our lives. Help us, Lord, to mortify those sins and to... to uh, use scripture to help us to battle those things with effective tools and effective weapons to 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 find victory. Lord, we know we we're not approved, made approved to you by our own works. We stand approved only on the on the basis of Christ. But Lord, help us by the Holy Spirit to lead lives that are increasingly more and more in the progress of time less sinful and more Christ honoring. Work in us as you promised you would do for your will and for your good pleasure. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.